But today we start a brand new series, and it is called The Church is Blank. And if I were to ask this group here, hey, what would you put in for that blank? We'd probably get some pretty positive answers, I would hope. Uh, We'd get some answers that are probably similar, uh, which, again, would be good. If I asked you at home, you would say some of the same things. But, But if we were to go to Springfield Town Center, and we were to kind of do a man on the street type deal and say, hey, fill this in for us. We might get a few positive responses, but I'm guessing we're going to get quite a few negative responses. And, and some may even be like the church's bleep, 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 right? We can't even share with everybody what we heard. But, but if you, you think about this phrase right here, the church is blank. I mean, think about that. What kind of words would you put in there? Because we all kind of have different experiences when it comes to church. And in fact, the word that we may put in there, it's going to come from one of uh, a few different ways. It may come from our past experiences. That there may be past experiences that we had in church growing up or not too long ago that um, some may have been good, uh, some may have been bad, and sadly some may have been ugly. Uh, maybe for others of us, if we think about the church's blank, maybe it comes from, our definition would come from pop culture. From movies we've seen, TV shows, things that we've read, uh, maybe just things we've seen on, on social media. And so our definition of what the church is would be from pop culture. For others, uh, maybe we get it from our news outlets, and the news outlets tend to point out all the negative things when it comes to churches. And, but some people may look at that phrase, the church is blank, and, and they're like, oh, I, I remember what I saw there, and so I would put that in there. For others, it's projections. It's, um, it's what we want for the church. It's what we think the church should be. And so we look at the church's blank and we put our projections in there. Or for others, it's even institutions that you're familiar with. Uh, other nonprofits, organizations, maybe groups of people. And so you kind of look at them like, well, if that's how they are, that must be who the church is. And, and so you would define the church, you would describe the church from, from other institutions. Now we could keep on going down here through this long list and say, hey, I think the church is blank and based on all of this. I, I get that. But, but the reality is, what is the church? What is the church? And we see that statement, the church is, what can we really put in that blank? And so over the next four weeks, we're going to put in words to fill in that blank that describe the church. And it may be words that you're thinking of, and it may be words that you're not thinking of. But we're going to spend our time over these next four weeks kind of talking through this. Now, this really is a piggyback series to the weird series we just finished. Uh, we talked about weird. We said that if we're followers of Jesus, we're called to be weird. We're called to be different than the world. But we don't do that alone. No, we're called to do that together in this setting, this, this thing that's called the church. Well, as we start the series, we actually should define what the church is. And the very first time we read about this word church is in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus is talking to Peter, and here's what he says. He says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. For some groups, you see, they've seen rock here, and they've seen church, and they've put these two words together, and they've said, oh, so this is talking about some structure, right? So when we're talking about the church, we're talking about a building. We're, we're talking about an organization. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This word that Jesus uses for church is the Greek word, and it's the Greek word ekklesia. Now, ekklesia does not mean building or structure or some location you go to. It means called out assembly. Or maybe even a better way to put this is uh, a group of people on mission together. 
That's what an ecclesia is. Now, we've translated that word into church, and again, in our minds, we've said Jesus means this building or structure. He doesn't mean that at all. He really means this, this group of people that are on mission together. And the mission that they're on is actually the mission that he gave them. He commanded them to go, commanded us to go into the world and tell his story. And so as we begin this, this series, the church is pretty simple. Here's what the church is. The church is people. Some of you can go back to Sunday school back in the day. You remember this, right? Put your fingers together. You know, this is the church this is the open it up and see all the exactly so you guys are smart you remember those things from back in the day Uh, we laugh about it now but it worked back then but that's what it is the church is people and so we we think about that and it's like man this thing should function so well as people are part of the church and and god has started this thing jesus started this thing should work so perfectly Although our main theme throughout this series is the church's people, that's not going to be our word for today. Our word for the day as we start this series is that the church is broken. And so over the next few moments, I want to talk about what it looks like as the church is, is broken. Because people are broken, and if people are broken, then the church is broken too. But stay with me. Uh, there's good news at the end. But I want to start from where Jesus really begins this thing. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but we read this. Here's what Jesus says to his followers as he's heading back into heaven. He says, And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I, I love this because Jesus is saying, Hey, I'm leaving. You're staying. You're going to spread my story. Now go figure it out. Because he didn't tell him, he's like, hey, guess what, guys? I got this 55-page handbook that if you read through, man, you're going to know exactly how to do this thing called the church or to, to do this thing called the ecclesia. He, he doesn't say, hey, for $39.95 a month, I will give you this software program that will help you figure this all out. He doesn't say any of that. He's like, hey, here's my command to you. I'm leaving. You're staying. Go make this happen. Figure it out. And so that's what they had to do. They had to go out and they had to figure it out and from the very beginning we find that the church is is broken i i want to spend our next few moments kind of talking about some history of the church and even beyond that 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 helps us be reminded that the church is is broken um after this happens this church thing begins this ecclesia begins and it starts and it's growing like crazy i mean amazing things are happening people are following jesus there's a little bit of trouble because here you have these Jewish leaders over here because people are leaving their Jewish faith and, and they're, they're taken away from their livelihood and from their, their position of power. And they're like, we got to do something about this. So you've got this religious leaders are causing issues within this new thing, this new ecclesia. But there were even internal struggles that started very, very early on. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Not that there would be rumblings of discontent in any church, right? The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now, now go back and look at that. we've, We've got rumblings. We've got discontent. We've got complaining. We've got discrimination. I mean, this thing has just started, and we're already seeing how the church is is broken. And how does this church fix it? 
the way every church fixes. They put a committee together, right? Don't ever put a committee together to fix things. They make things worse, okay? You put teams together. And actually what they did, they put a team together. And this team came together and they, they figured out these differences and they, they made things work the way that they should. But, but it was a reminder, here's this church thing and it's beginning and there's brokenness that's already there. And then look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, I'm going to do a little side note here for you because I find this very interesting. Interesting. If we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does Jesus say? Hey, I'm gonna, you're going to be my witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Here we are in Acts 8, 1. Switch those numbers around. And what do we see? We see the dispersion of people into these regions that Jesus said, you're going to go into these places and you're going to begin this thing. Called, you're going to continue to tell my story. and These churches are going to come up. And it happened because of this persecution that started happening within the church. Because these religious leaders like, we've got to, we've got to fix this. And so the church is really focused, the ecclesia was focused in Jerusalem, but because of this persecution that was happening, they began to spread to all these different places. I mean, the church is literally broken at this moment. But what does God do in the brokenness? He brings growth. He brings good things. And so the church begins to expand because of this persecution that's happening. Well, you've got this physical brokenness that's taking place. And so, again, it's kind of a reminder the church is broken or was broken. But, but then you have theological issues. And again, not that churches ever have theological issues or differences. But, but here we go. We find these theological differences that begin to, to show up in the church. Acts 15.1, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria... Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So someone comes up with this teaching, like, here's the deal. We want people to follow Jesus, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, we want to do that. Like, All right, where are we going to begin? Well, if they're a dude, they need to be circumcised. So it's like the worst evangelistic tool that has ever been put together in the face of all of Christianity for 2,000 years. You, you want to follow Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you got to get the snip snip, all right? That's got to happen to you. Well, that didn't go over very well, as you can imagine. And, uh, and so if you know the story, you read on, they come together, and they're like, hey, <laughs> that's not really what, Jesus never says that. You know, we're kind of adding that in. And so they come to this conclusion, like, you're right. You don't have to be circumcised. You, you have to repent of your sins. you got to be baptized, and then you can follow Jesus. But again, we, we see that the church is broken and there's theological issues that are coming up within this church. But, but then let's go beyond that. Let's, let's step beyond just what's happening there in the book of Acts. Let's actually look in our history books. In the second and third centuries, we find that there's, there's, there's the persecution of the church. And Christianity is, is, is being persecuted like crazy. And thousands upon thousands and thousands of followers of Jesus are put to death and very inhumane ways they are tortured to death they're just tortured in general imprisoned i mean this is a terrible time if you're a follower of jesus but these people are like we, we we believe in jesus we're following jesus again kind of being dispersed in all these different places but things take a turn constantine becomes the emperor in about 300 a.d he's like hey christianity is a state religion and, and kind of like some people think here in america you know if you put christians in charge 
everything's going to be wonderful and great. And, and here's this group of people and they're followers of Jesus. Like everything's going to be wonderful and great. We've got the state's ear. We can make these decisions. More people are going to follow Jesus. But what actually happens? More power. And there's corruption. In fact, at some point in time, the church probably becomes the most powerful entity there was in that time, even above the government. And when you got that power, what do you do with that power? You abuse that power. And so this group of people that at one time, centuries before, or even decades before, were being persecuted for their faith, they're turning around and now they're persecuting other people for their faith. You got the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, so many more things that happened over the course of history because of being in power. Again, it's a reminder to us that the church is broken. And then what I want to do is I'm going to scoot up about 1,400 years from Constantine and the the mid-1700s to the early 1800s or something called the Second Great Awakening here in America. I'm going to give you a little history of, of the church background I grew up in and church background of this church here. There were a couple of Presbyterian pastors, Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, and uh, unbeknownst to each other, they were beginning to preach and, and teach on things that were in the Bible that their specific denomination was, had kind of added to. And I'm not, I'm not poking fun at Presbyterians at all here, okay? Please understand that. But just in their own, own life and own stories, and as they read Scripture, they're like, something's not quite right here. Like, we're told to teach people certain aspects of our faith, but then when we go and we look at the New Testament and the New Testament Scripture and what's happening in this ecclesia, it's actually different. And so somebody connected these two guys together and they started saying, hey, we can, we can work together. And so they started something called the Restoration Movement. And the Restoration Movement was all about restoring the New Testament church. Like there's this ecclesia, these are the things they did, this is what was important to them. Maybe we should go back to that. Maybe that's the kind of church that we should be a part of. Now, the biggest piece to this was they were just getting rid of all denominational ties. I mean, these churches that they were starting, like, we're not connected to a denomination. We're not going to tell you what to believe and how to do things. Here's what we are going to do. We're going to be autonomous. We're going to be a network of churches. We're going to work together. That's how all of this is going to play out for us. And so they began, again, this thing called the Restoration Movement. Now, that sounds good. That sounds healthy. And they even had some tenets that they threw out there. And, and one of these reads this way, in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, in all things, love. You know, I read those words and I'm thinking, that should be the church, right? These are incredible, beautiful words. But towards the end of the Second Great Awakening, we have something called the Civil War. And the Civil War came, you have this restoration movement that's happening, it's spread all over the place and really started like in Kentucky and, and Illinois and Indiana, and you find quite a bit of churches like ours in those places. But, um, but in the north, they started adding instruments to their services. Well, the southern churches said, uh, we don't find that anywhere in scripture, and so we're going to say no to that. You know, you shouldn't have instruments in church. The Civil War was still playing out, even, the Civil, over the, even though the Civil War was, was over. And so you kind of had this battle between the northern and southern churches. And so you know what they did? They said, all right, you go do your thing. We're going to do ours. And so they split. But then that even expanded a little bit further because they started to have conversations within these other settings. And they're like, hey, what about our buildings? Our buildings should look a certain way. And so they were talking about, you know, one group is like, you should have ornate, big, huge buildings. Another group is like, man, we just need four walls. We're good to go. 
One group said, hey, you know, we should dress up on Sundays. You know, people should wear suits and ties and dresses. And the other group's like, no, you should just come as you are. And there were questions about women in ministry and where missions money should go. And you know what happened in the early 1900s? It split again. I mean, here's this group. And again, this is a part of our tribe. This is a part of what I grew up in. Man, they were focused on unity. And yet, what do we see? We see brokenness is there. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. I'm picking on the group I know because that's the group I grew up in. That's, again, the the group that this church is a part of. But whatever your church background may have been, if you were to, to look at that denomination or, like us, that network of churches, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find brokenness all over the place. Did you know there are 3,500 denominations in the United States alone? Like, you want to talk about brokenness? 3,500 denominations. Uh, We talk about brokenness this year, or about every year, you've got about 4,000 churches that close their doors. And that's just in the United States. And they say that because of the pandemic, we'll probably see a higher amount this year. Some of it's due to just not being able to afford to, to keep it going. But these churches are dying. And, and why? It's because of brokenness. About 3,500 people leave the church every single day. Again, that number is probably going to be higher this year. It is because we already hear that within churches. People are leaving. I don't need to get up on Sunday anymore, man. I, I did this pandemic thing. And, you know, I had my Sundays. And it was kind of nice. And I'm good to go. And I don't need the church. And And so we'll probably see a higher number of people leaving daily. Why? Well, it's because of brokenness. The brokenness in our lives, but also, I think, because the church is broken too. Some of you are sitting there in your seats, you're watching online, and you're saying to yourself, this is the most depressing message of the church I've ever heard in my entire life. And I get it. Stay with me. We're still here. 2,000 years later, the church still is here. Now, the church is still broken. And if you keep up with much that's happening within church settings, you know there are scandals and issues, and maybe even part of church splits, and people are, are leaving, but the church still exists. The church is still going. And even with everything that's happening and has happened over the past 2,000 years within the church, Do you know what? The church is still very, very strong. And God is using the church to bring hope into our world. We're seeing lives change. We see transformation in communities. God is still at work through the church. And here's the crazy part. I know people talk about the church dying in America. I don't believe it's dying in America. I believe that's some people's view of what's happening in the church. But if we go outside of America, we find that the church is growing exponentially in some of the most persecuted places in our world. You want to know where the church is growing the most? The biggest percentages, Iran, Afghanistan, China, Saudi Arabia, and places in Africa. Church is growing like crazy in some of these most persecuted places. Now, the church is broken. It is. But the church is still strong. And so over the next few moments, I kind of want to share with you 
why it's still strong. I want to share with you the importance of the church and, and that God is at work and, and just this love that Christ has for the church. And I want to do that by looking at a kind of a strange passage. Um, in the book of Ephesians, actually a letter a guy named Paul writes, and he writes it to this group of churches in a place called Ephesus. And, and in this, he's, he's writing to these people, and he, he's talking about marriage. But as he's talking about marriage, he's actually connecting it to Jesus and the church. And if you read a little bit of the, the New Testament, you'll find quite often the church is called the bride, and Jesus is called the groom. And so he, he uses this this metaphor to, to connect these two things. And I'm going to read through a little bit of Ephesians chapter 5. You probably heard this talked about before in a marriage series, not about the church. But let me read Ephesians 5, starting with verse 25. It says, For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. I've talked about this before, that for us we have one word for love, and it's love. But for the Greek language, they had many different words for love, and each one of those words were very specific. Now, if you look at what Paul writes here, at the very, there at the very beginning, he says, for husbands, this means love your wives. He could have used a natural term there for that kind of love. He could have used a sexual kind of love or an affectionate kind of love, but he doesn't. And he does this throughout everything he writes. He uses the word agape. And agape means unselfish love. And so as he's writing about marriage here, he's like, you know, marriage isn't about sex and kissing and holding hands and dates and, you know, mutual bank accounts. That's not what, what, what marriage is about. He said marriage is about this unselfish love. And in fact, he's very specific. He says, hey, husbands, you should have this agape, this sacrificial, unselfish love towards your wife. This is the kind of love you should have. And he says, that kind of love is the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. That Jesus has a sacrificial, unselfish love for the church. And because of that, husbands, you should love your wives that exact same way. He says this in verse 27. He says, that he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Think about a wedding for a second. Uh, and maybe you've been married recently. Maybe you've had uh, kids, specifically daughters, that have been married. And, um, you know, there's a lot of effort and prep that goes in into getting the bride ready for the wedding, right? Um, you got makeup. You got the dress. You've got shoes. You've got the hair. I mean, all this stuff that's got to happen. And it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. And, of course, it takes a lot of money to, to get prepared for this wedding. Uh, Kara and I have two teenage daughters. And, um, and when they get married in about 25, 30 years, <laughs> we've kind of talked about this already. We, we said, here's the deal. We think we're in, like, here's 5K. Go elope. Right? You know, just, let's just hold off on there. Or here's $5,000 and just get married in the backyard. Let's just do this really nice and, and simple. Because there's a lot of time and effort and prep that, that goes into it. But, but why do we do that? Why does that happen in a wedding? Well, because the bride is preparing for the groom. The, the bride wants to look the best that she can for the groom. And, and maybe there's this idea, if I look really good, then it'll just be this amazing experience. Well, here's Paul. And Paul's saying, the way Jesus looks at the church is not the way that a bride looks towards her groom. Like, there's nothing the church can do to prepare us for the love God has for us. There's nothing the church can do that will make Jesus love the church even more. 
Not, not, not more time, not more effort, not more money we can put into it. Because Jesus has this incredible, passionate love for the church, for the ecclesia. For this group of people that are on mission together with him. That even in the brokenness that we find within the church, even in the brokenness we, we find within ourselves in this setting of the church, Jesus has this incredible love. And there's nothing we can do to prepare ourselves to be better towards Christ. That that love is unselfish and that love is sacrificial towards us. And then Paul writes this in verse 28. says, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. Again, unselfish love, this incredible care, this unbreakable bond that is there that comes to us from Jesus. That even though we don't deserve it, Jesus gives it to the church. And we're supposed to have that same, same kind of love within our marriage relationship. But in our brokenness, Jesus loves fully the church. And then in verse 30, it says, and we are members of his body. Again, as this ecclesia, as this group of people that are, are living out this mission together, we're forever connected to Jesus. And so I kind of want to share some thoughts from uh, the, sort of the, the brokenness of the church and, and what Paul writes here about this, this relationship that Jesus has with the church and share a few thoughts uh, about how this connects with us. The first thing I would say is the church is fully connected to Jesus. That if we look at the church like we look at, at marriage, that there is this intimate connection, this intimate relationship, this intimate bond the church has with Jesus. Again, the church is the bride and, and Jesus is the groom. And, and there's nothing we can do to ever separate that. That even in all the brokenness, if we go back and look at history, even in the incredible brokenness we've seen and still see today, that there's no separation there. That Jesus still fully loves the church. And we're fully connected to Jesus because of that. Second thing I would say is that the church is bigger than me. Uh, so often when we talk about church, I mean, the first thing, again, that comes to mind is a location, a building, some sort of structure, a, an organization. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about the church, we're talking about people. We're talking about me. We're talking about you. We're talking about us. We're talking about New Life Bible Church across the street. We're talking about the 7,500 churches here on Franconia Road. We're talking about churches in other states and other countries. That's what we're talking about. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes those churches have differing beliefs and theologies than we do okay um but that's okay my job as a member of this ecclesia your role as a member of this ecclesia is not to hate them because their beliefs and theologies may be different our job is not to share things on social media bashing them because they think differently or see things differently than we do because the church is bigger than me and whatever God wants to do with the church and whoever's right or wrong, that's not some battle that we need to have. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be like a husband toward his wife. We're called to love the church the way Jesus loves the church. We're called to love it sacrificially with this unselfish love, even in our differences. We have to be reminded that the church isn't about me 
It's much bigger than me. And then the third thing I would say is that the church is made up of broken people. And we've been talking about this all morning. Uh, a pastor once said this, said the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the storm outside, you couldn't take the stench inside. Sadly, that's true. Um, I'm a broken person, and I always will be. And guess what? I'm a part of the stench. Uh, you're a broken person. You always will be, and you are part of the stench too. People that are part of the church all throughout the world, they're broken people. And guess what? They're part of the stench also. That's why I like to say all the time, you know, the church is full of broken people, but what I like to say about the Journey Church is we are made up of messy, imperfect, and I'm going to add in there stinky people, okay? Because we are, and we always will be as a church. But here's the deal. When those storms come, when that heartache is there, when there's brokenness in our lives, when there's pain and hurt and struggles, and those storms are around us, I can promise you there's no place you would rather be than a bunch of messy, imperfect, stinky people going through storms in their life too. That's why the church exists. You're not going to find that anywhere else where a bunch of people like that can be together and we're not perfect, but we can go through these storms as we're supposed to. One, again, Ecclesia is a group of people that are on mission together and our mission is to help people take their next steps towards Jesus. And that connection and that relationship with Jesus. That's why this works here, and that's why this works worldwide. We're part of something bigger than ourselves, and we're made up of broken people. But then the last thing I would say is the church is sacrificially loved by Jesus. We cannot get away from that fact that Jesus was sent to this earth to show us what sacrifice looked like, to show us what unselfish love looks like. And Jesus' death was a sacrifice for the church to exist and, and to be here for our brokenness. And his resurrection was why the church now should sacrifice itself to reach more and more people to tell that story of Jesus and to help people take those next steps. But we need to know that the church is fully loved by Jesus. But what does all this mean? Well, I think there's a couple of questions we can ask ourselves. The first one is, can we be all in knowing the church is broken? Some people come to church and there's this expectation that it's made up of perfect, righteous, got it together people. The reality is the church is made up of imperfect, messy, stinky people, sinners. And uh, if you're looking for that perfect church, by all means, this is not it, okay? Um, go look for it. And here's what I would promise you, you will never, ever, ever find it because it doesn't exist. The church is broken. But it's because of this love that Jesus has for us that we can do what we do as this body of believers together. But can we be okay knowing that this place is full of broken, imperfect, stinky people? And then the other question I would think we need to answer is can we be unselfish in loving our world like Jesus is unselfish in loving us? And probably a bigger question here that I would kind of pull from this, are we, are we spiritual consumers or are we spiritual contributors because those are two very different things are, are we here to consume now i want you to think about that for a second because that really is a hard question uh, part of the problem that we see in the american church today is that for many people who show up and that may be you uh, you show up and you're consuming right this is about being entertained for about an hour and and then you've got 167 hours to live your life however you want to that's not why jesus started the church that's not why the church exists. 
If we go back and read that once again, we think about what this ecclesia is. It's this group of people that are on mission together. We can't be on mission together if we're all about consumption. And I can tell you that's part of why the reason it seems like the American church is dying is because we're so much about consumption. But we're called to contribute. We're called to be a part of something bigger than ourselves on this mission together to see more and more people follow Jesus as we help and teach people, as we disciple people. That's why we are called to be this church. And are we willing to contribute to it? Now, I'm not talking about financial contributions. Some of you went straight there. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, being involved with, what, with what's happening, being sold out for what God's called us to do. Do you want to know some of the best leaders in our church here at The Journey? Some of our most incredible volunteers? They're the people who don't need a gold star by their name. They don't need recognition. They don't need high fives. They don't need praise. We try to do that as much as we can because it's important to encourage. But these people who are leaders and volunteers who are not looking for that, man, they are just amazing because they understand why this ecclesia exists. They understand why the church is here. We are on mission together to help more people take that next steps towards Jesus. The church is broken, and it's full of broken people, but we're called to contribute to that brokenness. And we do that through loving unselfishly ourselves, as Jesus did for the church. Because in that brokenness, what we will find is hope. We can focus on the brokenness, or we can focus on Jesus. And that's the choice that you and I get to make as a part of this thing called this ecclesia. Today, as we take communion together, if you're in this room, you can grab your communion packet. If you're at home, you can grab whatever you may have in front of you and I mean is this not the perfect segue into communion because it's all about brokenness that that we are broken people and because of that brokenness Jesus was sent to this earth for us and I'm just going to be honest with you right here what we are doing together in this moment is the most important thing we do every single Sunday it's not the music, it's not somebody up here speaking, it's not a sermon bumper or video stuff, it's none of that stuff. It's taking communion together because we are reminded of God's sacrificial love for us for sending Jesus to this earth that in our brokenness we can have hope. And this is what we celebrate together. And so I invite you right now, if you're in this building, to grab your wafer, if you're at home, grab your piece of bread or cracker and let's Take this together as we are reminded of our brokenness today. And then as we take this juice, let us be reminded that it's because of our brokenness Jesus was sent and that we have hope for our present, for our future, and for our eternity. Let's drink together. God, we are grateful, we are thankful that in our brokenness, you still loved us. And not just us, but humanity. You loved humanity so much that you sent Jesus to this earth 
to live this incredible life, to teach uh, about what life should look like following, following you, and, and then to sacrifice that life, knowing whole time death was imminent, death was coming. And Jesus agape us. He loved us unselfishly, sacrificiously. And today, because of that death, and because of your power over death and that resurrection, it gives us hope, God, that in our brokenness as a church, we are broken, but in our brokenness, you loved us so much, you sent Jesus. And it gives us hope, something to hold on to, that when those storms are present, there may be a stench. But God, that's because of our brokenness. But you're still present, and Jesus is still working, and your spirit is still moving. May we hold on to that in our life every day. And we thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.